Hey guys, welcome back. I've got a, another presentation for you this week. This one is on the DIM hypothesis in psychology. What is the DIM hypothesis? How does it apply to psychology? You know, I think that simply put, the two main issues that we have in psychology is it, both in psychological theory and in therapy, it's either too concrete and so not really fundamental or it's when it is fundamental, it's too vague. So how do we combine these into a unified view of psychology? What does unified even mean? When I say that I have a unified view of therapy, what does that even mean? We're going to talk about it, I think. But ultimately, yeah, it's going to mean that we have a view of psychology and therapy that is both fundamental and at the same time very specific, right? As specific and concrete as something like CBT, but as fundamental as something like psychodynamic therapy. How do we combine these two seemingly opposite spheres of knowledge into one unified whole? I think something like the DIM hypothesis is going to help us um, to do that. So yeah, you know, this may not be too, may not seem that helpful in the moment and perhaps boring. <laughs> I don't know, maybe somebody could use the word boring for a presentation like this. Uh, but again, if it's boring, then... If nothing else, it's going to help you fall asleep. ASMR podcast. That's what we do here. Inadvertently. Unfortunately. All right. AnimusEmpire.com slash schedule. If you just want to reach out and talk to somebody, let me know what's going on. You know, there's a lot of power in simply reaching out and talking to somebody about what's going on. Simply the facts. That's what we do here. Again, AnimusEmpire.com slash schedule. All right. The outline. Part one. We're going to discuss context of course and then part two what is dim what is the dim hypothesis if that doesn't explain it we're going to go through some examples in part three examples of dim in other fields part four dim in psychology now the dim hypothesis does come from leonard peacock a philosopher and he does a lecture on this not a lecture, but a series of classes, and I think they're recorded in 2004. And he talks about psychology and how it applies to his theory of dim. Um, but he gives it short shrift. And then when he does talk about it, he he simply discusses the psychology of, you know, supposedly intellectuals in in our culture. You know, yeah, right. It's 2004, so he talks about Doctor Lore and Rush Limbaugh, and it's like, well, hmm, you're not so relevant anymore. <clears throat> Anyways, we're going to talk about DIM and psychology, what an integrated, that's what the I in DIM stands for, what an integrated approach to psychology would look like. What does it even mean to be integrated in the first place? Again, what does it even mean to be unified? When I come on here and I say we have unified view of psychology, what does it even mean? It means that we group what observations and reality together in a certain way. We use epistemology in a certain way. And there's three fundamental ways to do that. Okay, we're going to get to it. And then part five, integration in psychology. So yeah, what, what an integrated view of psychology would look like and then and how, how it's going to be helpful to you ultimately. And then part six will be the conclusion. All right, so part one is context. Let me make sure I'm still recording here. All right, I am. Part one is context. So what does it even mean to be unified? You know, I come on here and I talk about how I have a unified theory of psychology, a unified theory, as because I have a unified theory of psychology, I have a unified theory of therapy. What do I mean by that? 
Yeah, it means that it's the same therapy process that can apply to anybody with any psychological issue. True. But what does that mean epistemologically? What did I do? What do I think I did, at least, epistemologically, to create an approach to therapy that is unified? And then what are the mistakes on a fundamental level, right? What are the epistemological stakes that other views of therapy and psychology make? I think DIM is a great tool to answer these questions. Yeah, this is a similar point I made about Dalton and Lavoisier versus Mendeleev in a previous video when I was talking about what I do here. And, you know, Dalton and Lavoisier, they're running around doing these chemical experiments and recording, recording the result, and it's helpful, right? This is all very helpful bits of information versus what Mendeleev did, however, which is to show how the different elements relate on a fundamental level. So not only does it explain the experiments of Dalton and Lavoisier, but it will predict how chemicals that we have not interacted for, it will predict how they will interact. You know, that's the difference between what, we, what we'll get to is a, a more disintegrated view of a field versus what Mendeleev did, which is a more integrated view of the field. And we're going to talk more about this. So, Yeah, so how do we, again... How can you classify a view of a field as either disintegrated, integrated, or M? That's what DIM stands for, misintegrated. How do we do this? Is this, we first, excuse me, we must look at how to categorize fact and observation. How do you categorize what you see around you? Right? This is the basic question of epistemology of philosophy. All these disparate bits of information just flood your senses. What do we do with it? How do we make sense of it? Do we say, well, it's all just different bits of information and there's no way to make sense of it? There's no way to group it together in, un, into a conceptual framework so we can understand the world in a, in a more helpful way? Well, some people would say, a lot of philosophers would say that, yeah, that, that's, that's all you can do. And that is the thinking behind a lot of psychology and therapy. So I don't care how many hours you do of, of supervised uh, uh, work, of, of supervised therapy. You know, I don't care how much experience you have. If you go in with the wrong epistemology, I was going to say mindset. It's not really mindset. It's not about attitude. And it's not about intelligence either. It's about how you group together the seemingly disparate pieces of information that you see in the world around you. And there's three ways to do this, right? There's three ways to group together everything that we see around us. Okay, I feel that this is getting a little bit abstract, but we're going to go to some examples here. So just bear with me a few minutes. There's three ways to do this. The one way to do this is to do it poorly. The second way is to not do it at all. And the third way is to do it well, based on the Aristotelian causes. So... Okay, just right now, you know, I, I have a wooden desk here and I have a note card. Now, I could categorize these two bits of information that have hit my sense of. I could ca categorize these poorly. I could say, well, what's similar about them is that they're both in this one room of my house. You know, which is true, but is that fundamental to what the note card and the desk are? I could do it not at all, right? I could say... These are two inherently different p 
pieces of information we could say hitting my senses. One is a note card, one is a desk. They're not related at all. They're obviously two different things. And any relation that I would put on them would just merely be my subjective interpretation of what they are. But a raccoon would come around and use them in two totally different ways. So you can't really say how the desk and the note card are related. Then the third way would be to do it well based on Aristotelian causes, based on what each object is, based on what the desk is, based on what the, the note card is. So the final cause, right? You can say, well, what's the purpose of both of these? Well, they both serve. Yeah, they, they both are exist in the same room. So it's not like that's totally wrong, but that's also inaccurate. And if you apply that method of integration, of of looking at the similarities between two seemingly disparate objects, if you could, if you continue that way of integration or really misintegration, then your view of the world is really going to be skewed. But ultimately what they do is they both help me, they, they both help serve the function of my work. So now we're looking at a similarity between them based on causes. Is this, okay, that was an example off the top of my head. Maybe that wasn't too helpful. Here's an example that I thought of previously. Let's look at animal feet, right? And this obviously overlaps with the uh, example of just looking at different pellets of experience. Let's look at different pellets of animal feet. Now, how can we categorize this? Well, we could do it poorly. We could say, well, let's categorize the animal feed based on its color. Not looking at, not looking at the fact that there's two different animal feeds of the similar color, but they're for two different animals. One's for sheep and the other's for cows or pigs. Yes, you categorize the animal feed, but you did it poorly. Another way to do it would to not, to not categorize the, the animal feed at all. Say, well, it's all different. Who's to say what kind of animal's feed is good for a certain kind of animal? Uh, and really, you have no way of categorizing. The other way would be to do it well, to look at, okay, what is the animal feed? What is in each animal feed? And let's categorize them that way. Let's look at, yeah, the form and the matter of it. And then let's look at the purpose for it based on the nature of the, the animal feed, based on what is actually in the pellets. So there's three ways to categorize it, right? To do it poorly, to do it not at all, or to do it well. And there's many ways to express this trichotomy. The three different ways of grouping knowledge. And, and you know, I'll just take this time to say I get a lot of this from uh, Leonard Peikoff's book, The Dim Hypothesis, Why the Lights of the West Are Going Out. Um, hey, you know, I'll say this. If you think I do a good job explaining how I have an integrated view of psychology here, then send a, uh, send this video to, you know, Dr. Peikoff. I think his website is peikoff.com. Or you could also send it to um, Edwin Locke or Ellen Kenner. Locke is L-O-C-K-E. Kenner, K-E-N-N-E-R. So Edwin Locker, Ellen Kenner, and just tell him, hey, this guy has a view of psychology, an integrated view of psychology, and he goes through it based on Peacock's dim hypothesis. They may find it helpful. So, right, there's 
many ways to express this trichotomy. So let's go through a few ways to express this trichotomy. We can do it in epistemology. This is a basic form of doing it. Intrinsic, that is a concept exist intrinsically in, uh, in, in a group of objects, right? in, in a group of concretes. So an example of this would be the platonic forms. There's a form of a perfect triangle somewhere, and we don't see any instance of it in, in reality. But there is a form that emanates itself down on what we view as material reality, which is an alternately real. The only real, uh, real reality is uh, the form or the world of forms. Another way we could do it is subjective. We could say, well, there's really no way to form concepts. It's all in the eye of the beholder. It's totally based on the subject, not the object at all. And that would be to do it not at all. The intrinsic is doing it poorly. The subjective is not doing it at all or abdicating your responsibility of concept formation. And then the third way would be objective to say that relation between objects exists based on what the object is. Based on at least one, preferably the final cause of the Aristotelian causes. Another way we can do this is in virtue. How do we conceptualize virtue? It could be obedience to rules, to rules, to traditional rules that we don't question. That would be um, an, a poor integration. That would be a misintegration. Another way would be virtuous progress. Uh, virtue is simply adaptation to society. That is abdicating the responsibility of saying what virtue is because eventually, or excuse me, essentially you're saying virtue is whatever society wants. There's no objectivity to virtue at all. The third way of categorizing or conceptualizing virtue would be to define it as the adaptation to what your nature is and what reality is. So you're not uh, adhering to some rules based on tradition. You're not just being blindly obeying rules. You are creating rules, not based on any whim you have, but based on your nature, based on reality. You know, like very similar, like I would say, how they set up a gorilla habitat in a zoo. They base it on the nature of the gorilla. And that's what the habitat is. They don't say, well, who's to say what the nature of the gorilla is anyways? And they don't just say, well, this is how they built the gorilla habitats in the New York Zoo in 1898 when all the uh, animals were tortured. I mean, more than they're maybe being tortured right now. And another way to express this dichotomy is how to gain knowledge. We can either do it through deduction by looking at inferences from um, from concepts, from premises, often uh, gained a priori, thinking uh, Descartes here, we could simply uh, gain knowledge through perception. Every little bit of information that we see, it's a separate bit of information, and there's really no way to group it. And then through induction, through combining the uh, concrete um, world that we see based on similarities between objects based on the causes of that object, based on what the object is, how it's used. 
And there's more here. I mean, there's uh, philosophical categories. That's another way to express this trichotomy is either rationalism, nominalism, and conceptualism. Where does knowledge come from? That's I'm just saying the philosophical category of how we gain knowledge. It's um, deduction from a priori concepts or all we have is fact, not truth, and then conceptualism. Concepts are based on grouping together, again, similarities between objects and discarding their, dif their differences. This is also expressed spiritually. There is the spirit, there is the material, there's the high, there's the low, then there's the Unitarian. At least religiously, this is a co combination of both the spirit and material are reflections of each other. Psychological attitude, it's also expressed this way, and I'm going to criticize Jung for this later. It could be introverted, extroverted, or I would say normal, or both, or one is is used, or each propitiate each other, um, each complement each other. There's two sides of the same coin, or we could express this dichotomy in, in emotions. Emotions are either base, they're, they're omnipotent guides, or they're guides, yes, but they can be flawed, and we need to analyze the emotion. It is full of information, but it's not informa information that we um, that is readily available to us without error. We can still misinterpret them. So, what does dim do? <clears throat> what is dim? Oh, <laughs> I think I was supposed to delete this. Uh, so the, yeah, there's three main trichotomies. Is there cynicism? <laughs> hey, do some more editing. What, what is this? Possibly delete. What is dim? Okay, I might come back to the slide, but I think I express all this information <laughs> in other slides. So okay, so there's three main tri trichotomies. I already discussed a few of them: intrinsicism, subjectivism, and objectivity. This pertains to how concepts relate with concrete. Mysticism, skepticism, and certainty or contextual certainty pertains to results of cognitive quests, and then there's rationalism, empiricism, and reason pertains to the main faculty of knowledge. And a fourth main trichotomy now is dim, as Dr. Peikoff would argue, and dim pertains to what we do with the multiplicity of data we receive. It is a verb, not a noun, not an end state. It is what we do. It is the active process of integration of integrating this seemingly disparate uh, world of facts that we see around us, or it's the act of not doing it or doing it poorly. Regardless, it's an action and enables us to see philosophy at work in its cultural implication. DIM, I guess, is the tie to integration itself, and yeah, treats integration as the focus. So the trichotomy is misintegration. An integration, but a poor attempt at it. There is one, there is the concept without the precepts, percepts, excuse me. There is the concept without the, the instances of that concept in reality. And again, an example of that would be platonic forms. There's only one ideal triangle. Everything else that we see around us isn't really a triangle, it's just a, a vague shadow emanation of a triangle. Another way of um, what, what we can do with multiplicity of data we receive from our senses is we can disintegrate it. We can say, you know, as I've 
been hopefully expressing in these examples, we can say how, yes, that we can note the differences in the information that we see, the disparate, the disparate uh, pieces of information. We can note each one of them separately, but we can't really say how they integrate. We can't really say what their similarities are, what their main similarities are, what their differences are. You know, who's to say whether these two chairs, one big and one small, who's to categorize them in the same concept? We can't do away with the attribute size and say, well, let's look at the nature of what the chair is based on one of the four causes, maybe all of them, preferably the final cause. What is the purpose of the chair? And then the third way, and ultimately the correct way to integrate the seemingly disparate bits of information we receive from our senses is to integrate, is to look at the one not as opposed to the many, not the many as opposed to the one, but how the many combine to form the one. Look at the similarities. This is induction. This is concept formation based on reality. Now there's some nuance here to misintegration that we're going to need to understand to get where we're going here. Um, one would be M1. So this is misintegration to, just to simplify it, a lesser degree. This is worldly supernaturalism. This is the recognition of the many and the recognition that, that the natural world is real, but not as real as a higher world, as a higher reality typically referred to as God or consciousness, depending on the philosopher. For something like Descartes, it's going to be God. For something, for another M1 uh, philosophy like Stoicism, we'll talk about, it's going to be consciousness, it's going to be your thoughts. Yes, the world exists, but what matters more is this realm beyond the world? And then M2 would be a more extreme version of this, classically represented as Plato, is, and he would say, the transcendent world, um, that is the only world that exists. The, the Platonic world of forms, that is the only real world. Everything that we see here is merely a reflection, and you, re and you hear part of this philosophy spouted in different areas of our culture, especially in psychology. We will get to it. And then there's integration, uh, or there's nuance and disintegration. So the D1, again, to complement the M1 and M2, D1 would be the less egregious form of disintegration. And this would be the knowing skeptic. Um, the natural world is, okay, it's obviously there, because you recognize the reality of the natural world. And maybe you can, uh, it can be grasped in lower level concepts but as what but when it comes to creating principles or theories that would explain an entire field, you know, there's no way. So the many mostly exist and you know, there's some ones in there, but not an overall uh not an overall one, and definitely not a one based on observation. And then D two would say that both concepts and percepts are completely detached from reality. There is the many without the one. And this is portrayed most famously in philosophy through Kant. 
And is there any integration or any nuance integration? No, there's no nuance to I. Uh, you either integrate well or you don't. The natural world is real. Concepts derived from percepts. And this is Aristotle and Ayn Rand. I think, um, you know, objectivist, uh, they play up, I think, Rand's importance in epistemology. In epistemology. I, I think Aristotle basically laid out epistemology, how to do it. If you want any uh, questions about this, Look at my um, history of philosophy notes. Uh, Rand, I, we don't have to get into it, but Rand did correct some things in Aristotle, I think. But I think based on everything else that Aristotle said and based on knowing that we only have fragments of his work, I'd have to imagine that Aristotle didn't make the mistakes that he did make, but whatever. So what is integration? It helps find the conceptual common denom dem denominator. It unites similarities against a background of differences. I'm just kind of restating what I've already stated before. And it puts elements together to make a coherent whole. Um, a whole is not equal a juxtaposition. A whole is coherent. A juxtaposition would just be a zipper and a sweatshirt in the same room or in the same box together, but they're not attached. A whole would be putting the sweatshirt uh, or putting the zipper on the sweatshirt and now, not only does the zipper become more useful because it's attached to the sweatshirt, but the sweatshirt becomes more useful because the zipper is attached to it. It's a 1 plus 1 equals 11 thing as opposed to a juxtaposition, which is just a, a 1 plus 1 equals 2. And this is why I think when you integrate properly in a field, what I'm going to argue is what I do in, uh, in psychology, you're going to get more solutions. You're going to get more answers than you thought you were going to get when you do this correctly. Because the whole is way more useful than, than the sum of its parts, right? It's the gestalt. That's a great word for it. Elements and molecules, again, a good example of this. The elements, it, when, when they combine to form a molecule, it's not an additive. It's not adding up the properties of the elements. The molecule takes on completely different properties that the elements did not have on their own. Same thing with car parts in a car. You can have an entire garage full of car parts, and that's great, and there's value in those car parts, but if you put those car parts together in a helpful way, then the car, of course, is way more valuable than the sum of the parts. You know, we can go on thread and tapestry, men and company. You know, a, a man is way more useful as a result of being part of a company as opposed to working on his own. Sometimes. Sometimes he's more useful on his own, and that's when he breaks off from the company and does his own thing. And there's three requirements for integration, and this will come up later when I argue that I we have an integration of psychology. The one requirement is it must be based on reality. Give us truth about what reality is, as opposed to arbitrary, something emotional or authority. You know, it can't just be, I feel it, so it must be true, or this is what the Romans and Greeks did, so it must be true. It has to be based on observation. Integration is an active process. It doesn't happen automatically. And when you integrate correctly, you can shuttle quickly. Peacock uses the term shuttle. You can shuttle quickly between the one and the many. You can go from the theory of what you're talking to about to an instance of what it is. And you do it virtually instantly you don't really lose the concrete in the integration it's always there 
And the, the fourth requirement of integration, I think I'm going to say here when I talk about um, my integration of psychology, is that the other pieces of the field begin to fall in place. Or, like I just said, it explains more than the theory originally intended. You know, examples are evolution. Uh, it didn't just explain how we evolved. It, it actually helped us understand certain aspects of medicine. It helped us understand analogous parts and why those exist. Or the periodic table and chemical reactions. It is explaining chemical reactions that we didn't even know existed or we've never even done before. That's how you know it's a good integration. Newton's laws don't just explain how apples fall from the tree, right? It explains all movement, even the movement of, of planets, of uh, heavenly bodies around each other. I think this is conceptualized in stories when there's a master of two worlds, where there's a good uh, deuma in a plot. The hero doesn't just solve what he thinks he's solving. There's a, a, a rush of of other instances that he solved by solving what he thought he needed to solve. You know, there's so much more is taken care of when he becomes master of two worlds psychologically, of course, represented by the conscious and the unconscious state. And just to say, I don't know how relevant this is, but DIM is not analysis. Analysis, what it does is it grasps differences that separate which is indispensable to human knowledge, but is not an end. It's just, it's basically a way of, of strength te testing any principle or any concept that you have developed or theory. It's a great way to discover error and integration. And it's what we do in therapy, in, in a sense, at least in part, hopefully. We, we take out false beliefs and patterns. We, in a sense, analyze your life from a psychological point of view. Um and my observation, even though M is a misintegration of concepts, it can be correct. Even though the mode of integration is incorrect, the principle that it arrives at can be correct. Now, it's usually because of an accident, but it can be correct. And D, a disintegrated view of a field, it can offer a healthy epistemological tool for analyzing premises, theories, principles. However, I is necessarily correct when you integrate knowledge in a healthy way. Now, some I's are going to be more useful than others, of course. But if you integrate properly, then the principles that you re induce as a result of the integration, they are necessarily going to be correct. And just another note uh, before we get into some more dim examples is dim is universal, except in fields where we see immediate consequences. Like I always say, um, we, we don't have a problem building bridges. We have a problem with therapy and psychology. Why? Because the result of the treatment is not directly uh, connected with the treatment. <clears throat> That's one reason. The other re reason is there's way too many variables. There's way too many variables in psychology, so it's just not too many, but there's a lot, and it makes them unwieldy and difficult to manage, and people can get lost in the mess and come up with principles that don't make any sense, that don't account for all the information, or they do the opposite and just say, well, there are no principles. Each patient is different. I'm going to do a patient-centered approach. We'll, we'll get to it. But with bridges, the immediate outcome of the theory of what the bridge is is made immediately evident right um 
and there's a lot fewer variables. The variables are fewer <laughs> in number. And then it, DIM also doesn't exist in fields of lower level of abstraction. I, I guess that's another way of saying there's not going to be as many variables. So there's not going to be any DIM anatomy. It's a, you know, it's obviously a relevant uh, approach. And if you're going to do surgery, geez, I hope you study some anatomy. Excuse me, but there's no DIM anatomy. All right, so part three, let's look at some DIM examples. And part of these I'm taking from Dr. Peacock's book. Part of them I'm come up with uh, on my own. And this is just to give you more of a foundation. So when we talk about DIM and psychology and where psychology needs to go as a field, you have a better grasp of what I'm talking about, preferably. That is if you're not asleep already. So let's look at DIM in philosophy. M1 would be Spinoza, Descartes, and Socrates, who I would consider the great integrator. I think Jung is the Socrates of psychology, which may give some view on where I categorize Jung here, at least in part. But these are um, philosophers who, yes, they definitely paid attention to the real world, but only as it's derived from a priori principles like Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. It's really more, I am conscious, therefore, I am. And everything deduces from that. Everything deduces from that. It's not supernaturalism in the typical sense, but as Peacock says, it's worldly supernaturalism. Um, M2 would be Plato, Augustine, Hegel, although they have different ones. Plato, it's the good. For Augustine, it's God. And for Hegel, it's actual the one. That is the only thing that matters. Everything in the material world is simply a reflection of this supernatural working in another realm that we cannot see. We live for the other realm. Only the other realm is real. Everything that we see here, it's a, a mere illusion. <clears throat> D1 is utilitarianism. It is true because it works, which, you know, I just need to make the point here. It's in my philosophy notes, but this is classic uh, parasitic epistemology, epistemology. Epistemology is that you need to rely on the correspondence theory of truth, right? I mean, in saying that the proposition has certain consequences, uh, you are saying that it must lead to certain consequences. That is rely on the correspondence theory of truth, um, so we can't come up with any broad abstractions of what is a good action according to utilitarianism. It's just whatever works. But yeah, how do you determine whatever works? They're trying to get out of the correspondence theory of truth. But you can't. And then there's D2. This is Hume, Kant, and in a more modern view of Hume and Kant is uh, Wittgenstein, modern an analyst, um, linguistic analysis. Uh, reality... You know, there's two worlds there. All we see is our interpretation, right? <clears throat> All we see is the sense data we receive from the real world. But there's no real way of saying that the sense data we receive is real. So we can't really know what reality is. It is using philosophy in a sense to completely denigrate our relationship with reality. I mean, that's what philosophy is. It is how man relates with reality. And something like Kant would do, or Wittgenstein, 
is to say there can be no relation to reality. How can we know what is even real? It's D2. And then I would be Aristotle, the first complete system of philosophy based on observation and causality. Like I mentioned before, the four causes. So that would be dim in philosophy. I think there's dim in medicine. A misintegration would be holistic medicine, Chinese medicine, shamanism. This is an attempt to base medicine on principles. But where do they get these principles from? Well, depending on what part of the world you are. Well, I mean, I guess in general, it's based on your feeling, based on your gut. Not based on the scientific method, right? Not based on real observations and reality. And look, I'm saying that you can go to Sedona and do the uh, holistic thing, and you may stumble on something that may work. Right? I'm not saying everything in, in holistic medicine or everything in Chinese medicine doesn't work. But... um. There are, right, but it's just the method that you apply. I mean, I know somebody, I know a guy who's Chinese, and this is in the past 10 years, who died. Who died because he had cancer and he relied on Chinese medicine, and then when he went in to go get uh, real medicine, which, well, wait, is it real medicine? I would say, no, that's a problem too. We're going to get to it in the D. But then when he went in for chemotherapy, it was too late, and he died. And how old was he? 25? Not even. Then there's D in medicine. And this is how people criticize Western medicine right now. It's medicine without concern for the patient as the whole. So if uh, you have uh, insulin resistance, you're, you're given insulin drugs and you don't look at the diet. You don't look at, okay, this problem isn't just about an insulin resistance problem. Yes, that is how it is perceived. But there is a concept of what insulin resistance is. And actually, if we just change our diet around, we can get to the root of a lot of problems when it comes to insulin resistance. Another uh, example of D in, well, this isn't medicine so much, but, you know, the guy who just thinks that macros are the only thing that matter. And of course, macros matter, but you don't look at how those macros interact with each other. Macronutrients, I mean. You guys are all bros, right? You understand that macro is macronutrients. But we don't look at how those macronutrients interact, or we don't look at how other things that we can eat can actually affect inadvertently our macronutrient consumption. It's just looking at the concrete. And then an I in medicine would be medicine from a paleolithic, you know, the paleoprimal standpoint. And I'm not saying that everything in the paleolithic primal standpoint is correct, but it's an emphasis to focus on first principles based on medicine yeah excuse me medicine based on what human is what a human is not based on some spiritual concept in holistic and chinese medicine um, not based on oh this one study that shows that this drug can offer some improvement for insulin resistance i'm sure that study shows it what else is that drug effect what else is that drug not uh, addressing that may be something like a diet or changing, you know, to go to the paleo thing, changing your environment could help. And our environment is based on our nature. Again, like the gorillas in the zoo. How do you build a proper gorilla habitat in a zoo? Do you look at your random idea for how to build a gorilla habitat? Do you look at what would be a cute, you know, habitat or something? 
give the gorillas like hats to wear. Like, yeah, okay, that would be cute, but is that going to be a good habitat for the gorillas? And where are we at at time here? Oh, this is going to take forever. Okay. Now let's look at dim in physics. M1 would be <coughs> Einstein. This is um, a theory based on equations and not observations, based on math and not empiricism. And this is what would happen. The math works out in this kind of scenario. Now, I'm not saying Einstein's wrong, but the, the mode, the approach that Einstein took to physics is classic M1. And look, again, I'm not criticizing Einstein. In fact, if I had to guess, I'm not a physicist, but I would guess that Einstein's theories are correct. That doesn't excuse him from being an M1 or taking an M1 approach of looking at percepts or excuse me, looking at theories apart from percepts. And again, not his fault. I think a lot of the issue is we just lack the technology to, uh, you know, get, get the observations that we need. Same thing. So same thing with M2 um, in physics, St like string theory, uh, quantum mechanics, Big Bang. These all may be correct, but they're not based on observation. They can't be. Right? You need observation to really take an eye approach. And we just don't have that technology right now. I mean, uh, what you need is, right, you need McConaughey to uh, plunge himself into a black hole, <laughs> into the singularity of a black hole, and then uh, ping back the quantum data through gravity or through love, through his connection with his daughter. We need observation. So I don't know, maybe string theory is correct, but we, you know, right now it's M2. And another example of a M2 being correct is Giordano Bruno, who before, uh, I don't know, maybe it was before around the same time that, um, geez, who was it? Not Kepler, not Galileo, not Nostradamus. Copernicus, uh, Copernicus, geez. Copernican revolution in, uh, in physics, right? And that's what Kant is. And philosophy, the Copernican revolution in philosophy. But Giordano Bruno, you know, had an intuition that the earth wasn't the center of the solar system, that the sun was, I think. I forget exactly what he said, but, but it was just an intuition. He didn't base it on any proof. This was an M2 approach. He was ultimately right, but it was an M2 approach. It was an M2 mode to physics, even though he was right. Then D1 in physics would be uh, positivism. Uh, this is Auguste Comte. This is, uh, you know, we have like different views of physics and, and none of them are related to each other. Yeah, there's different branches of physics, but none of them are related to each other. Very, very much, much indicative of an academic situation of a publisher parish. You just have to keep churning out more and more information without integrating it into any coherent whole. And how could you possibly integrate it into a coherent whole? And then uh, D2, um, yeah, I think D2 would, would be more quantum mechanics because quantum mechanics is, essentially says uh, we cannot observe reality. We cannot observe the physical world. There's no real observation. I'm not saying the observations of the quantum mechanics are wrong. I think they're reporting them correctly. I just think at a certain point you say if your observations of how the atom works, if it totally negates your view of or if it totally negates your ability to view the atom in the first place, then I think we're dealing with a level of technology that we just don't understand or we don't have yet. 
So how an electron really doesn't have an identity. It's a wave and a particle. I, I think it is a wave and a particle. That's a good way of explaining it. That's just the best way, but it's not true, right? That's just the best way we have of explaining it now. Schrodinger's cat. You know, what kills the cat? You, you, you put a cat in a box um, with um, uranium or plutonium. That's decaying. What kills the cat? Is it the uranium? Well, there's, you know, there's no way to say. It's you opening the box to see if the cat's still alive. Because we can't look at the nature of the uh, uranium, I think that's how it goes. And then I in physics would be the Newtonian approach. Principles based on cause and effect, based on observation. All right, let's look at uh, the dim uh, example in literature. M1 would be the uh, classicism approach, the revival of, of uh, Greece and Rome. This is Dante Milton. This is turning back to the classics, turning back to... Uh, tradition for the sake of turning back to tradition saying well it's old so it must be right it's old and it's stuck around so there must be something right there and i think that is true to some extent but it doesn't really give you um a view of what good literature is if you just say well let's just look at what's worked or let's just look at what's old imply that it's worked the longest and then m2 in literature would be propaganda <coughs> Literature for the sake of uh, being didactic. There's always some kind of mass demonization of an enemy. And then D1 in literature is uh, naturalism. Just you know, more of like a journalistic story. Just saying what happened. And I think a good example of this is Mom. Somerset Mom. Who's an author I really enjoyed. Um, you know, Again, this is no way criticizing how good the art is. Or how talented the artist is, simply their approach. And postmodernism would be something like Joyce. A, a deconstruction of what literature is. That's what Joyce is doing. An I approach would be something like Hugo, Dostoevsky, Flaubert, I would say. Characters choose their own actions, and a plot is an, a set of, or a series of integrated parts. So it's not just one scene, then the next scene, then the next scene. Here's what happened, which is more what mom is. I mean, mom's not totally like that. But it's look at all these different scenes. Look at how characters' choices affect these scenes. Look at how these scenes, look at how these different parts of the story build on one on top of each other. It's not just a juxtaposition. Again, you go back to that, that terminology of events. It is a... It, a set of events becoming greater than the sum of their parts, a gestalt, a coherent whole. And yeah, I say, no, note the different philosophies here. I, mean, I think Hugo and Dostoevsky and Flaubert had different philosophies and different view of life. Um, you know, like Madame Bovary, this is a woman who makes decisions. They are unfortunate decisions, but she sees the consequences of her decisions and her life gets worse and worse. Because her, because her decisions are poor. Not that her decisions are poor so much, but that it's based on a flawed intention, I would say, insecurity. Whereas Hugo would show the opposite. Hugo shows, in a lot of his books, uh, Hunchback, um, Toilers, uh, of course, um, 93 to maybe a lesser extent, Definitely like Les Miserables, and of course The Man Who Laughs, the um, integration of a man's life, how a man builds himself up. Um, 
let's look at um, dim and art. So M1 would be classicism, revival of Greece and Rome. You know, I, I always know I'm, I'm looking at an M1 painting when the skull, it represents death. The skull always freaking represents death. And it's easy to criticize postmodernism. You know, we'll get to it. <laughs> but at a certain point, you know, you have to wonder, you know, um, painters are sitting back and going, look, skulls have been representing death for 500 years now. Let's just try to do something different. And there was some good in that, but, you know, maybe a lot of destruction, a lot of nihilism in that, too. M2 would be propaganda, again, didacticism, same thing in literature. Uh, D1 is naturalism. I, I always know I'm looking at a D1 piece of art when I say, oh, that's cool. Or, oh, oh, cool, neat. They use that technique. Oh, interesting. That's cool. It's just a, a representation of reality, but it doesn't really say anything. It's just more like a Somerset mom novel, uh, a journalistic uh, a portrayal. Maybe more of a photograph. Not exactly a photograph, but more in that in line of uh, creation. And then D2 would be postmodernism. I would be romanticism. I have some examples here. Because I realized, man, this uh, this presentation has no uh, pictures. Well, we're not going to have pictures, but art, which is which is um, not as much fun. But okay, so classicism is just um, a revival of uh, Greece and Rome, or antiquity, I, I would say, in um, in the Renaissance period. Again, classicism. Here's what these things represent. This is based on tradition. In part, this is didacticism, but it's, you're not just doing that. There, there's other things. We're showing the beauty of what we believe. Here, this would be M2, um, some kind of propaganda poster. Another example of M2, right? I mean, this is propaganda that, and it's art. I think it's technically art, but it's you're you're... You're making a point. You're making a definite point by portraying this political figure in a certain way with that certain stance. I don't know exactly what that says in Russian, but I'm sure it's not uh, denigrating Lenin. So if we're getting into D1, I have uh, issues with uh, Matisse. Some of his stuff I think is could be I. This, I think, is more D1. Or maybe this is I. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it gets tricky with art. Don't, don't uh, hold my feet to the fire in this one. But I think another uh, better example of D1, I was just in SFO, and they have this uh, <laughs> horse made of driftwood, and I walk by and I go, oh, that's neat. Okay, now I'm, I know I'm looking at an uh, example of D1. You're not totally deconstructing art. You're just creating a visual representation of something in an interesting way. You're not really saying anything. Also, you're not really not saying anything. <laughs> it's not... Right? It's just a visual representation. But this isn't to criticize just uh, kitschy art. I think some things that we classify as really quality art is D1, and that would be Vermeer. I mean, especially now that we know his uh, Oculus Obscura, or whatever that's called. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, please, for the love of criminy, go see the documentary Tim's Vermeer. Watch that this weekend. But I think even if Vermeer didn't use a camera obscura to create these, uh, you know, these, these beautiful paintings, I mean, just absolutely, you know, amazing, it would still be D1 because he's just taking a slice of life. And then D2, total de deconstruction, postmodernism, this would be Jackson Pollock, famously. You can't distinguish it between his paintings and 
uh, the mess that he makes with his paintings. And of course, one of my favorite people of all time is Yoko. This is D2 in, in art. I mean, using her voice to destroy music. It's difficult to get more nihilistic than that. And then some examples of what I think her eye is. The City Rises by uh, Umberto Buccioni. Baccioni, excuse me. Um, this is an integration of... This isn't reality, right? This is an integration of what he sees to create a theme, to create a premise, not based on anything supernatural, but to based on what he sees going on around him. And using, you know, obviously great symbols here, like the man taming nature, man taming the nature, the power of the horse to create civilization. It's classic eye. Um, I think I probably mentioned this before, but this painting, it's at the MoMA, it's huge. It must be 11 feet by 9 feet. Give me goosebumps when I saw it. Absolutely stunning. And then this one at the Guggenheim by Franz Mark, uh, The Golden Cow. This is after he broke up with the woman. So this is a representation of, I, I just have to think, uh, you know, this, um, uh, an integration of what he, of what he views as this beautiful yet destructive force of, of, of the feminine nature and how, you know, just great it is. And this is Van Gogh, of course, not painting what the sky looks like, painting what the sky appears to be to him. This is integrating the sky, the beauty of the sky not just a reporting on it, but he's showing the beauty of it. It's not just the night sky. It's the night sky is integrated with man's life and how some, something like just looking at the night sky can be an integrative function in man's life. And then man makes himself. This is clear eye, in my view. Man creating who he is as represented by man carving himself out of a block of stone. Okay, I got a lot of examples here. You know, I'm just going to stick with them. This is going to be a long presentation. Listen to it in two parts. Uh, dim in uh, education. <clears throat> and I think when we look at education, there's a lot we can say. So I'm just going to look at uh, dim in grammar. Tim, when it comes to grammar and education. M1 approach would be to instruct grammar based on antiquity and tradition. Like We're, we're going to put the comma here. We're going to create a sentence of this structure because this is how Cicero says to do it, or this is how Cicero does do it. M2 would be obedience to rules, uh, not based on um, antiquity or anything else, just based on this is the way that we do it. We put the comma here. Uh, subjunctive clauses are constructed in this way because this is just how we do it. And it could be correct, right? Your uh, construction or your placement of, of, of a subjunctive clause could be correct. But the mode, again, is M2. D1 is the memorization of rules. This is how society does it. Again, but not really giving any explanation. And then D2 in grammar education would be the progressive. Hey, what's grammar anyways? It's all based on our subjective uh, judgment and it doesn't really mean anything real. It's just uh, subjectivism. An I approach to teaching grammar is to teach it as a tool we use to help us express our concepts, our words, which are ideas. This is an example from the Van Damme Academy in Orange County, California. Is a child, when they're taking, I don't know, maybe a quiz or a test on grammar, famously, you can't just have the or use grammar correctly. It doesn't give you uh, a, a, this 
a correct score. Maybe they'll give you partial credit. Maybe it even won't. But you must explain why you put the or, or why you use the grammar that you do in that certain sentence. So why does the sentence end here? Why do you put a period here? Why do you put a comma here? How does this convey the idea in a more accurate way? So there are rules to grammar, not based on antiquity, not based on, well, this is just what society says to do, based on what the nature of ideas are and how we express them. Dim in politics, this uh, the M1 approach would be, we have rights, but they come from God. M2 approach would be uh, the state without man. So I guess a good way of saying this is M1 would be the state with man. M2 would be the state without man. D1 would be some kind of mixed economy. Again, pragmatism. Let's just do whatever works in the moment. And then D2 would be something like anarchism, just total egalitarianism, or what I think is being expressed a lot now is environmentalism. I is symbiosis between man and the state. One does not oppose itself on the other. Right? Neither man nor men are in charge, rather concepts. As Aristotle famously states, it's a rule by law, not by men. And there's just a bunch more examples here. Let's just go through these quickly. Theology, M would be God exists apart from and above man. D would be God doesn't exist. And I would be God is man. God is a projection of what man is. You see this in fitness too. Uh, M1 would be working out for its own sake. M2 would be modern bodybuilding with no real intention of of doing a bodybuilding show. I mean, if you're a bodybuilder and that's how you make your living, that's different. But if it's just bodybuilding for the sake of bodybuilding, that is a classic M2. You know, sticking to concepts, sticking to ideas apart from how helpful they are to your life and to your relationship with reality. The D1 approach to fitness is, would be, hey, your scale doesn't matter. It's, it's really more how you feel about yourself. And this kind of bleeds into the D2 approach, which is body positivity. You, know, you can be 300 pounds unhealthy. Who are you to say? And the I approach is you are healthy or you partake in a fitness regimen to live a better life. <clears throat> it's not one as opposed to the other, which is what modern bodybuilding gets into. You are healthy. You go and work out. For the sake of making your life better. You can see dim in advertisements. M would be the art ad. And this will win the awards. Or maybe it'll, you know, controversy ads to raise awareness. This is influence culture. But <clears throat> it's it's something that I would say we ultimately can't measure. So there's really no percepts in reality when it comes to art ads. I mean, the only thing you can measure it against is does it get more people to, you know, does get more views of your ads. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean you're selling anything. Are you measuring that? The D approach to advertisement is just to, you know, throw the spaghetti at the wall, do a lot of what works, and you can't really measure it. Just do a bunch of everything. I've definitely been a part of advertising advertising agencies that did this, and it wasn't helpful. Um, and then I be the, uh, what we would call direct response. You integrate the message in regards to the prospect's needs. So there is an integration to the advertisement based around the specific needs of the prospects. And you know the specific needs of the prospects is because you ask them, or maybe you don't ask them because maybe right prospects can't really communicate their needs, but you listen. 
you listen to what they say and you understand their needs better than they understand theirs. And then you cultivate a message based on that. Classic. Classic I. Okay, this is just getting stupid. Bro, for the sake of bro. No such thing as bro. Who's to say a, a soy boy is, isn't any manlier or more masculine than the bro? Okay. And then you also see Dim in our vernacular. M is, he's way off base. D is, he's shattered. Just can't uh, put himself together. And I is, hey, he's a put together guy. He's a square, as we use that word and how it was typically meant, is he has, in a sense, with eternity, he has like the four parts of his character combined well. So now let's look at dim in psychology. Do I even want to look at the time? Okay. So dim in psychology. Let's look at the M1 approach in psychology. In theory, this is the cognitive view. This is supernaturalism in thought. Consciousness uh, is the supreme power and nature that is the emotions are derivative. Now, cognitive psychology is based on or cognitive, originally rational psychology based on stoicism. Also a classic M1 approach is yes, the real world is there, but what matters more is how I feel about myself. What matters more is what control I have over my thoughts. You know, the, the burgeoning, the growing Roman empire is taking over Greece. That doesn't matter what, what matters more or yeah, that's that's happening, and we recognize that it's happening, but what matters more is a sort of small-s salvation by retreating to our inner lives. This is what cognitive therapy is. And the therapy, of course, is this is CBT. It is essentially what happens is um, because of the misintegration, because you place consciousness above reality, above emotions, we can just get rid of emotions and change our behaviors by arguing with them. We have a instance of perceptual facts versus concepts. There's a conflict between the perceptual fact, the fact that your emotions exist, the fact that you're jealous over your ex-girlfriend, even though you're the one who wanted to end it. It doesn't make any sense for you to be jealous. So you go into the therapist and you argue with that and you say, well, can't you see how this doesn't make any sense? So in a sense, the low versus the high an argument with emotions. When you ever come against a conflict, that's a, usually a sign of a misintegration. That is usually a sign that you have are, are basing your principles on what you want to be true or something that you haven't questioned or stress tested on a fundamental way. So that is M1 in psychology. M2 in psychology. This would be positive psychology. The thoughts are things, Sedona crowd. Reality is an illusion. This is based on quantum mechanics. And this is just one view. I was going to make a bigger deal about this throughout this presentation, but clearly it's going on long enough. This is uh, what happens. So quantum mechanics is a D2 kind of philosophy. It says that we can't really know reality. But what I think happens often is you're going to get the compensation. So a D2 philosophy is going to give rise to um, an M2 way of being in the world. So classic example is the D2 of Marxism gives rise to an M M2 uh, political, um, yeah, an M2 politics like communism. And B.S. Skinner, another example of this. I think in a psychological theory, he is a classic D2, a disintegrator of psychology, using 
a psychologist who effectively says that psychology doesn't exist. We're just um, a system of inputs of stimulus and responses, and there's no factor. There's no consciousness in between the stimulus and the response. It just happens. So this leads to an M2 in politics. This leads to a totalitarian state where, if right, you read volume two, it's a manipulation of people. It's using society to manipulate people to do the right things. The society or the state is total. It controls all. And then in therapy, M2 would be affirmations, the all-powerful uh, use of affirmations that that somehow affects reality, right? Not that you can't talk about yourself in a healthy way. I think that's important. But you're doing it because it's true, not because you're trying to change reality. But when a lot of people talk about affirmations, especially the Sedona crowd, um, these affirmations are more powerful than reality. In fact, reality doesn't exist. It's just an illusion. And you'll hear them say that. Like, you you are just a, a wave of light. You're a particle and a wave. You have no identity. Everything's an illusion. It's just thought. And prayer would be a form of M2 therapy if you look at it as supernatural prayer. Now, I, again, I, I, th I think there's something very important in prayer. It's never going to go away. But the idea that prayer is this thing like you, like you literally send your thoughts to somebody and that changes. The, so you pray for somebody's cancer. You think, and, and you know, people will say this explicitly if they believe this, that your thought vibration somehow goes out and fixes the cancer. Christian scientists, in a sense. And again, like like the Chinese medicine. Another example, right, of M2. Well, let's look at D1 in psychology. This is going to be most psychologists, most therapists that you see. The theory is, in a sense, there is no theory. Like pragmatism, like utilitarianism, everybody's different. Um, great example of D1 is the DSM. This is uh, psychopathology with no integration. On principle, there's no integration. Content is reached by committee and everything is specialized therapy. Um, so, you know, this, this doesn't discredit anything in the DSM necessarily, but of how it's organized. And we think that an eating disorder, for instance, is fundamentally different than like an alcohol use disorder. Alcoholism. It's <laughs> another annoying part of the DSM is you have to come up with the most uh, politically correct term. Uh, alcohol, it doesn't have a problem with alcohol. It's just a, a use with alcohol that has some sort of disorder. So it's order with his use of it. And the D1 approach to psychology is the basis for a research explosion, vice versa. Um, so, right, there's a bunch of psychological theories, like going back to Dalton and Lavoisier, a bunch of experiments, and it was all helpful. It was all good information, but any hint of integrating it into a coherent field, it's, I mean, it's not laughed out. It's not even considered. You can't even talk about it with 99% of psychologists. That's why I recommend you send this to Edwin Locke and Ellen Kenner because I think those are two psychologists who will be able to understand what I'm saying. And by the way, when you send it to them, just uh, link them to part five, the, the timestamp part five, because they already know parts one through four, I'm sure. Um, so this is the basis of the research exclusions. Let's just get as much research as possible, but... 
the research explosion of is of course uh, more funding, more government funding that happened throughout the 60s and 70s. So the research explosion is in part to uh, validate the amount of funding that people get. Like if you have funding for the research, people will come up with more research and they're going to be incentivized in a sense. This is part of it. It's mostly an epistemological error, but they are incentivized in a sense to not integrate the field at all. Because if you just say that uh, psychology is a group of studies that are disconnected from each other and everybody's off busy doing their own study nobody's really talking with each other nobody's taking an aristotle class to figure out what integration is to look at a form and a matter of something looking at the four causes nobody's doing that so it just becomes this hodgepodge of information again like lavoisier and dalton helpful and it's been very helpful to me and not a waste of time completely but somebody like mendeleev needs to come around and say look this is how we actually put elements together and then D1 in therapy would be to do what works in the moment, write the perceptual without the conceptual. There's really no strategy overall, just a bunch of tactics. And you see this a lot in DBT. I mean, DBT, dialectic behavior therapy, it's not really philosophical, but which is an indication that it's mostly D1. And, you know, there's just a bunch of contradictions here. Like they see acceptance versus change. That's kind of the fundamental view or what DBT was started on is acceptance is somehow different from change where i think if you look at change correctly it is ultimately acceptance and if you look at acceptance correctly it ultimately leads to change there's multiple modules i call it oats <laughs> overuse of acronym therapy that's what dbt is if there's just a bunch of acronyms it's it's uh it's dbt and it's again tactics not a strategy, not an overall view of what psychology is. Just, oh, here, try this in this moment. Oh, here's here's a tool you can use to uh, to make your party that you're having. Like you're having a birthday party this week, and here's a tool you can use to make it uh, easier. And also D1 in therapy is a concrete-bound analysis uh, of your situation. So if you come in and say your problem with, with your mother-in-law, then that's the problem. You have a fear of spiders, and that's what the fear is about. And you can do exposure therapy on the spider, and you can overcome your fear of spiders, but you're still an anxious mess. Yeah, there was some fear of spiders there, but ultimately that's not why you're afraid. Here's some examples of D1 in therapy. This is from Twitter. Real therapists focus on the patient. Pretend therapists focus on their theory. Classic D1, as a, implying that a theory is somehow opposed to a patient or a patient's needs. Yeah, and I understand there's theories that are opposed to a patient needs. Those are misintegrated theories. Those are poorly integrated theories. It's got to come up with a better theory, brah. And then this is another classic D1 is, um, you know, I wouldn't refer a patient with focal symptoms of somebody, so a therapist lacking in CPT skills. So like what this uh, kind of behavioral therapist does is fundamentally different than what the psychodynamic therapist does to what the person who the family therapist does. They're dealing with something different. Like, um, oh, you, you can't uh, treat somebody who has, uh, for example, an eating disorder. To go back to a comparison that I made earlier, you can't treat somebody who has an eating disorder because you don't have any experience of it. You only have experience with alcoholics. Actually, I think you, you have to see the similarities between the alcoholic and the person who has eating disorder. And this, if you do it well, I would argue it actually brings a better perspective to the person who has an eating disorder because they begin to see, right, this is part of therapy, they begin to see the connection, how they're connected to other people, and how what they're dealing with isn't just something that they're dealing with. It's something that we all deal with in various ways and to various degrees. 
right? There is no DSM, a bunch of different psychopathologies. They are all different iterations of the same thing, of emotional dysregulation. Now, in order to do this, we need to look at what emotions are, how they work. This is going to inform the I approach to to psychology. And then D2 in psychology, This, in theory, this would be Freud. Ultimately, no resolution, right? You have this conscious, you have this unconscious. There's no resolution. There's no resolution to, to a human living in civilization. It's just something we have to deal with. Therapy is anti-therapy. It's, a, it's, um, it's just a bunch of sessions of right, opening the release valve on your unconscious and getting this pent-up frustration, these uh, crazy sexual fantasies out so you don't do anything too weird between... Yeah, but between your uh, sessions of analysis. And, of course, critical race theory. D2 in psychology. Classic D2 and another classic example how D2 leads to M2. Like when we saw with the, the Chaz thing in, um, in Seattle a couple summers ago. This is a D2 philosophy. This is a nihilistic, uh, a disintegration of people based on their race, uh, based on their gender. There is no commonality because we all have a different experience, which seems, whoa, that's so open and free. But when you actually put it into practice, you get something like Chaz or Chops or whatever it was, and you essentially have an M2 civilization. That's what that was. And then Skinner, of course, um, as I mentioned before, D2 in psychology. And then in therapy, this is the patient-centered approach. You know, whatever the patient wants, um, Whatever the patient thinks is important, that's what matters. Uh, I guess not questioning the the patient at all. Um, this is anti-therapy, right? Therapy is going in and creating a better relationship with yourself. The implication of going to somebody is you couldn't do that on your own. So you go to a therapist or a psychologist to get feedback. And essentially what he says is, I validate you. You're totally right. And this is also activism therapy, classic D2 approach. Again, anti-therapy. Psychology is creating a better relationship with yourself. Uh, activism is the opposite of that. It's, we need to change society for me to be better. Um, all right, now part five. Let's look at integration in psychology. So, so the first one you need to get to that... Peacock says that we need for an integrative view of psychology is um, a definition. We need a definition of psychology. And to borrow from philosophy's definition, the relationship between man and reality, psychology is the study of man's relationship with himself. Which, yeah, I have an example from neuroscience class. I took a neuroscience class, and that's the first thing that the uh, that the professor asked us the first day is to say what, what a definition of psychology was. And I, I said, this is the study of man's relationship with himself, which was offensive because I, I guess her uh, original intention in asking that question is for, for us to see that there is no definition of psychology, right? Classic D1, perhaps even D2 approach. And what we're going to learn in the neuroscience class is just how the brain works. And this isn't necessarily psychology. I don't know. It's just a bunch of different facts. And it may not really say anything about psychology as a whole because there's no definition of it. It's way too big and abstract of a field to define properly. That's the implication. But, of course, it was also offensive because I used, uh, you know, I said the study of man's relationship with himself. So everybody, I remember everybody got, um, you know, not upset, but... 
there's some modern version of pearl clutching, you know, which pretty much says everything wrong about psychology. And so here's a guy who's at least offering a definition. I mean, you can argue with it. You can say I'm wrong. But to say that it's wrong for me even to even offer a definition and, the, and then just being criticized that I'm using uh, gendered pronouns. Ah, grad school. Okay, so there's three three principles of, of integration uh, from Peikoff, or, or three principles of an integrated view of psychology from Peikoff. This is what Peikoff says um, would need to be included in the integration of a psychological field. So man is a conceptual being. Man who has free will and he's motivated by values rather than efficient causation. There are values in his psychology that he is motivated to get met. And I would also add... The, another principle of an integrated view of psychology is, yes, we need to explain why man has free will. And then maybe the implication of that is why man doesn't have free will, because that's ultimately why psychology exists. Is because we come to a point in our lives and we do have free will. Not to 100%, right? not to the percent that Sam Harris would demand we, we need to show in order to say that man has free will. Not 100%, but we do have free will to some extent. I think probably to more extent than you think is possible, even though we can look at genes and hormones and how these influence us. There's still a lot of room there for choice. So we need to understand why we don't have free will, why we don't do things, right? As I always say here, why don't we do things that we don't want to do? What am I doing when I say that? I am integrating psychology. I'm taking an abstract field and I'm integrating it to a fundamental problem that we all have. That is an act of integration that I am doing. You have come to this channel. You want to reach out to therapy. You want to do the perhaps humbling act of going to see a psychologist because you have come to a point in your life where you are beating your head against the wall. You either can't do something that you want to do, or in the case of an addiction, for instance, you can't stop doing things that you know you need to stop doing. This is where we begin to see some overlap between the the, the teenage girl who has an eating disorder, or the much more, much more common eating disorder I think now is a, you know overeating disorder, and something like an addiction. But we immediately see the commonality there. Oh, you're trying to stop doing something. You, you, you know, whether it's you're trying to stop heroin or eating a sleeve of Oreos, you both know that the, the Oreos and the heroin are going to kill you. And honestly, sometimes, depending on the person, the Oreos are going to kill you faster. But you can't stop doing it. So those are, I think, the four principles that we need of an integrated, just say that of, of U.S. psychology is integrated. So what the cognitive view gets wrong that Peikoff says, you know, he says tepidly, but he says that the cognitive view is the closest to an I approach. But what I think cognitive gets wrong is that, um, yeah, there's, you know, a free will and there's individual autonomy, uh, but without focus on what's fundamental. Um, hand analogy, I, I trusted myself to remember what the hand analogy was. It was probably when I was making these slides. I thought, I'm going to use a hand analogy. Maybe it'll come to me and I'll come back to this slide. Um, but another thing that uh, cognitive uh, gets wrong. So, it, yeah, there is individual autonomy, but not focus on what's fundamental because there's no delineation of emotion. The focus is on cognition. But the implication of focusing on cognition is that cognition is enough, even though, yes, cognition does influence our emotions. 
but not all the time. Ultimately, where we get our actions from, our actions stem from our emotions. We do not have action. And we do not have a lot of thought, actually, without emotion. If it's psychology we care about, then we need to focus on, therefore, our emotion. Right? Because if we're not doing something that we want to do, that is the cognition is not lining up with the emotion. And the most that cognitive therapy does with emotion is, again, like I said before, it argues with it. It creates the concepts apart from the percepts. So I would say that's the result of a misintegrated view. Yes, cognition matters. Is it as fundamental as to say that it's the base that you would call your your kind of psychology or therapy? Would you call it cognitive? No, because cognition is just one part. And this is why, by the way, cognitive behavioral therapists focus on cognition because the implication is the lower, the base, the emotional, the perceptual reality doesn't make sense. It inherently doesn't make sense. It inherently is contradictory to the concepts. That is classic M1 approach. Like, yeah, emotions don't matter or, or we can't focus on emotions because it doesn't make any sense anyways. Let's just focus on the cognition. And the emotion will maybe just kind of work itself out eventually. This is why cognitive CBT is M1. So I don't think that... Um, oh, I've got some issue here. All right, can you see that? I don't... So let's look at Jung, the integrator. Of course, you guys know that uh, Jung, I think he is... Uh, Again, he's, he's the Socrates of psychology, and this is exactly why, because he is the integrator. So the pre-Socratics were going around saying that the earth is made up of different things. The next commander said air, Thales said water, you know, there, there's a bunch of them, right? You had two totally different approaches, uh, hard M2 in Parmenides and hard D2 in Heraclitus. So Socrates had to come along, you know, very much to where psychology is now. So Socrates had to come along and say, look, let's let's try to integrate here. Let's go to smart people. Let's go to to people who are well-respected members of Athens and ask them what justice is. Let's talk to different people and come up with a concept of what justice is. Now, this isn't to say that Socrates' concept of justice is correct, but we have to recognize the I approach. He's the great integrator in, um, in philosophy, and that is exactly what Jung does. Jung comes into a, a field that is either Freud, D2, or a lot of religion, which is M, M1, or M2. And he goes from M to I by making the M concepts psychological, and he goes from D to I by showing how the different parts can be integrated. This is what he does. This is what Jung does. As Jung does. So it's a profound I statement, for example, when he says he knows God exists. He is taking what would, tap, what would classically be viewed as an M1 or M2 concept, and he's making it an I concept. He's saying philosophically, when he says that he knows God exists, he says philosophically, I don't know. That's not uh, my, um, that's not within my field as a psychologist. But I do know that if you put three people in a room 
they will come up with something like a god. I do know you look at a bunch of indigenous tribes that develop separately for the most part. They all have some idea of a god or a spirit world. So the fact that you have a god, the fact that you create a god, said something very true about the nature of our psychology. And in fact, I would argue it elevates the idea of what God is by putting it up as something akin to our highest value. Psychologically, that is a very true statement. So Jung integrates that. He says how these, again, these M concepts are I, are based in reality when we understand what our psychology is. And also Jung goes from D to I. That's the main difference, right? I mean, you know, on the surface, Jung and Freud are debating about what libido is, whether it can be sexual. Ultimately, what they're debating about is, or that was at first, that was the beginning of the split, but Freud sees this mind with a bunch of disparate parts that can't be connected at all. Jung sees the mind with a bunch of disparate parts that can't be connected and says, this is neurosis. We need to come up uh, with a process through which these can be integrated into a unified psyche, into a fully individuated psyche. And what this does is it renders other D2 philosophies as psychological. He looks at what Kant does and he integrates it. He says, boy, <laughs> philosophically, yeah, Kant, it, it uh, leads to complete nihilism. But maybe what Kant's doing is something psychological. And as evidence that it is psychologically true, what Kant says about, yeah, we, we often feel like there's a reality out there and there's a reality in here and the two are uh, incompatible. So it says something true that Kant's philosophy was able to be as influential as it was. So I would say that Jung is mostly an implied I with some M1 elements. And it's only implied, I would say, because of the things I criticism for is, uh, you know, like, for example, he doesn't break down psychology into a definite choice. Oh, let me remove that. He doesn't break down psychology into a definite choice. And a less charitable reading would call it an M1. But um, Jung integrated, right? So he took other concepts. So he took other M concepts. I forgot to mention, like... Uh, you know, like God, right? Okay, so that, like the mass, like the Catholic mass, he took that. Typically, we would see that as an M1 concept, and he's showing how this is actually indicative of a psychological process uh, projected out in these symbols. Now, Catholics don't know they're doing this when they go to mass, but maybe in a, in a way they are. Alchemy, M1 science showed out it was psychological and actually very important psychological you know ritual shamanism you know the spirit is mystical these are all m1 concepts that Jung says are, are actually psychological in origin and say a lot of true things about our psychology even though the actual practice of alchemy is not scientifically valid and there's also a lot of instances of Jung as an m there's are a few of them and i think this is basically because Jung was not as philosophical as he needed to be to be a total I psychologist, uh, but he was an integrator of Freud. He did see how Freud was wrong. So there's some compensating M1 elements that I think get mixed up in there Yeah, as a result of the compensation. Um, so the attitudes and types are M1, even M2, to whatever extent they are chosen, to whatever extent they are based off of more fundamental psychological processes. 
Jung says this is an M statement. Neurosis says that neurosis, or excuse me, Jung says that neurosis has within it the solution to the neurosis. There's just something magical and mystical in the neurosis, and that's true to some degree. But there still needs to be a, a more definite explication of what the neurosis is, so we can see the truth. We can see what the what the neurosis is trying to correct. Sometimes, you know, when he talks about the collective unconscious, it's vaguely supernatural. Sometimes he talks about it as real, sometimes it's vaguely supernatural. Again, implied I can be interpreted as M1. And yeah, the, the M1 is indicated because, um, you know, a lot of people in the M2 crowd latch onto it. You know, the Sedona uh, Chinese holistic uh, medicine crowd. A lot of them, you know, the, the, the shawls, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the woman, the middle-aged woman, the thrice-divorced middle-aged woman walking around the shawls, doing that whole thing. The M2 crowd. They've taken over a lot of young, and, and you go to a young conference now, and it's it's people who don't. I mean, just from my view, don't understand anything, and, and do a lot to, of harm in misrepresenting him. And Jung doesn't break down psychology to definite again, like, like I said, but to, like I said before, to definite individual choice, and yeah, a less charitable reading when call him an M one that was in the previous slide. And then Jung as a D1, he's not really a D1. There are hints of D1 here and there. I don't think it's anything fundamental to his flaw. I mean, he's the opposite of D1, right? I mean, he got his start doing the, the word association and looking at patterns. I mean, he's a great integrator there. You know, Other people are doing word association, but the way that he looked at patterns and was able to come up with an idea of a complex because of that, it's just classic I integration. Um. But sometimes he'll say stuff like, hey, who am I to say whether this is true and this could all be wrong? But that's just more him trying to seem like he's a normal person and not a genius. So, again, what were the criteria for integration in any field? Um, yeah, this was mentioned before by Peacock in his book. Finds the conceptual common denominator, use similarities against background and differences, and puts elements together to make a coherent whole. And then three criteria, I would say four, ultimately for an eye in psychology. Man is conceptual, free will, final causation. And then I think most importantly, why we don't have free will. Why we even go to a therapist in the first place. So let's look at these. Three criteria is met in my theory. The man as the conceptual being. Yes, I mean, that's what we do here. We ask fundamentally what is a thought and what is an emotion? Why would we even have emotions in the first place? We break it down to first principles thinking. Every biological function uh, exists is, is a teleological process. That's why it exists. And if emotions are modes of operation, then there can only be two emotions. Something that drives us, whatever you want to call them, an emotion that drives us toward a goal. Right? There's the teleos, there's the final causation, and an emotion that restrains us from a goal. And we can define neurosis based on exactly this. So neurosis is having an emotion that keeps you from a goal that would be healthy for you. To be determined based on philosophy. Another form of neurosis would be to be driven towards a goal that is unhealthy for you. Again, based on philosophy. 
And we need to explain why free will exists and why it doesn't exist. Why wouldn't we have free will at times? Well, because the nature of how our emotions work, they can uh, warp our view of reality. And we know this. And we know this because when we work through our emotions in a certain way, based on what I presuppose them to be, then we create a better relationship with reality. And also, there's a definite way of doing this. right? So why we don't have free will for, on the anxiety diagram, for instance, is we're stuck in obsessive thoughts and, impuls- and impuls- compulsive uh, behaviors. We are in avoidance of anxiety. Or we are not taking responsibility for something that could... Cl- that must necessarily be our responsibility, even if somebody else, like our parents, is the cause of it. And same thing with anger. Anger gets stored up as something that we would approximate to be sadness, depression, and this makes it less likely for us to do what we need to do to assert our needs to be assertive and attain a a sense of uh, compassion or appreciation or gratitude, whatever you want to call it. Same thing when we feel the anger, but don't take it on as our own. Don't accept it as our own. And it also creates a, a, uh, what what, what am I saying? It also creates some impediment to free will. So you have to explain where free will, why it wouldn't exist. And then the third criteria met is final causation. Yes, emotions are modes of operation and they either extract us from a goal. And what I would put forth as my adult stages of development as broad final causations, right? Separation from parents. Find out something to do with your life. Um, create friends. Create a romantic relationship. Create emotional connections. This is based on many observations of who you are. Not what I think man should be. And then what else it solves? Again, to go to like the master of two worlds kind of scenario where not only do you solve the thing that you think you needed to solve, but there's a rush. There's a wave of other solutions that come with it. And what my theory does is it explains personality traits and other floating abstractions like extroversion, introversion. Like I break down what Jung says as extroversion and introversion and how these are could actually just be different reflections of the same thing. Somebody could appear as, quote, extroverted, and, appear, and somebody else could appear as introverted and we say, oh, look, they're totally different, but actually they're just acting out on the same issue. They're just doing it in different ways. We can explain why somebody is agreeable, for, for instance, um, and not just say, oh, this is just my personality. Is it? Maybe it is your personality to some degree, and I understand how it's based in biology. Right, we can recognize the limits of free will, but also is there some sense that you're agreeable in a pathological way? What exactly would that mean? Well, if you break down emotions and how they work, you can derive exactly what that means. I don't need to go into that now. Same thing with conscientiousness. How can somebody's level of conscientiousness fluctuate massively over time? Well, you have to to ask somebody. You can't just look at conscientiousness as a floating abstraction, as a concept not based on observations of reality. By the way, they got the big five personality traits through looking at a dictionary. I mean, just looking at definitions. So in a way, it is kind of an inductive method, but it doesn't go the, the uh, furthest step and say, we have to relate this with what we see people do, asking people what they do in reality, very much like what Socrates did with supposedly important people in Athens. 
Where does the conscientiousness come from? Why are you doing it? How does anxiety affect conscientiousness? When you understand you know, more basic modes of behavior, like emotions and how they work, then you don't have to rely on these floating concepts, these concepts that detach from reality like conscientiousness. Another thing my theory does that I never intended it to do was it resolves the emotional expression issue. Right? There, there's this dichotomy in our culture between, yeah, it, it's healthy to express emotions, but when you do express emotions, you invariably look weak. So men don't want to go to therapy. Typically, this is the narrative. Men don't want to go to therapy because they don't want to express emotions because then they're going to be weak. And this is only true when you come at it from either a disintegrated or misintegrated view or the D1 or, or the D of you uh, leads to the compensation, the compensating M view. Um, but if you look at what emotions, what they are, if you look at the, uh, the, the diagrams here, you know, this tells you, and I'm, I'm not going to go into it now specifically. I, I have uh, my book and my course for this, but this tells you ex exactly how to talk through emotions in a way that not only becomes, allows you to become more aware of your emotion. So it's more likely or it's less likely to affect you outside of your awareness, but you don't look weak. And in fact, you look really strong. People like you. It's, it's again, the master of two worlds kind of thing. Like, oh, you can do both. In fact, the more you do one, the more you get out of the other. It's like the weakest you can be long term is to just avoid the emotional issue because it's going to come out in strange ways. It will eventually. Another thing that my theory does is it explains individualism in a very concrete way. Now, Jung did this too, but again, because he was vaguely influenced by the M1, because I think he wanted to integrate so hard that it, it ends up um, being vague, or more vague than it, than I think is really helpful. But let's explain exactly what individualism individualism is on the psychological level, exactly the process for going about it. This isn't part of what I, what I talk about in my adult stages of development. Because it explains individualism, it explains what healthy masculinity would be and what healthy femininity would be. It also would explain what toxic masculinity would be. I think ultimately an invalid concept, but I understand why people use something like that is a man who, who just adheres stringently to whatever he thinks are masculine principles, you know, often coming from an M1 approach because he has Cicero or some Roman or Greek guy as, as an avatar in his Twitter account. You know, that's how you know you're dealing with an M1 guy. And he's sticking with these masculine principles for no other reason than their principles or for no other reason than, than Cicero or Teddy Roosevelt said that their principles live by. So if you have a, a man sticking to those principles, as a way to avoid emotional issues, and that is invariably going to come off as toxic masculinity. Same thing with femininity. It explains what healthy femininity is versus unhealthy femininity. Healthy masculinity and femininity, that is simply individualism with masculine, with male and female hormones. That's it. Also, what my theory does, it delineates, decentralizes, and unifies the therapeutic process it shows you exactly what the therapeutic process needs to be. This is all a great derivation that I, that I go into in my course. It's too big to go into now, but necessarily, and, and I wasn't planning on this, but if you develop a unified theory of a field in theory, then the application of that theory would, uh, uh, would be unified. 
and the application of psychology is therapy. So we have a, a not only a, a unified therapy approach, but something completely decentralized, something that you, you don't need to rely on the expertise of the therapist for. Now, you know, better therapists with more, you know, um, in tuned uh, integration, you know, it's going to be better, but you don't need it. It's nice, but it's not necessary. It's not fundamental. And again, a simple explanation for the disorders. This is anti-DSM, not really anti-DSM uh, necessarily, but uh, let's just replace this entire book with two words, emotional dysregulation. Now, the reason psychology couldn't do that before is because there was no delineated view of what emotions are and how they work specifically. But if you integrate the field, then you have that view of what emotions are. And then you can just say emotional uh, uh, dysregulation without it being emotional uh, or without it being, excuse me, a, a floating abstraction, a, a, a concept not based on references, on reference in reality. Otherwise, if I just say, oh, we could replace DSM with uh, emotional dysregulation, then that would be the what? Yeah, that would be the, the D or the M1 approach. But because we do break down emotions here, and we show specifically what it means to regulate emotion, and specifically how to talk through your emotions to regulate them, then it's an I approach. And it subsumes all the therapy hodgepodge. You know, there's a bunch of, like I was kind of criticizing uh, dialectic behavioral therapy. That, you know, uh, the, uh, the OATS, the overuse of acronyms. Um, but there are some good acronyms. Like there, there are some good tactics. There's not a good strategy in DBT, but there are some good tactics there. But they're not tactics that exist upon uh, in themselves. They exist as part of a whole system. What my view of psychology does is those tactics, a lot of those tactics are implied. So part six, conclusion. I challenge you. Look at the dim in your field. Look at where different pieces of information you feel are being disintegrated look at where they're being misintegrated and look at where you can integrate them in a healthier way or in a better way in a, in a way based on what the different parts of the field fundamentally are the causes I think a lot of fields you know they take this for granted and they take premises that they don't question they run with them and they just you know people will just waste years in fields you know, like companies will waste tons of money on art ads, for example, and we have no real proof that they do anything. It's just that you know, we have enough money for it and we can do it, so let's just do it. So, yeah, look at where areas of your field that are taken for granted, that the big guys aren't looking at. And also ask yourself in your field, why, right? This is just saying the same thing. You know, looking at what your field takes for granted, another way of doing that is just to ask why. Why are things done in this way? What is it based on? Where do they get these ideas from? And I think if you really start to if you really start to deconstruct, analyze, to go back to that word, the field in this way, you can start to break apart the pieces and, and get a clear view of what your field is so you can 
So even though you maybe you don't you're not as smart or as talented, <laughs> maybe I'm talking about myself here. You're not as smart or talented as other people. You you can at least have the right premises. And and your mode of approaching the field is going to be more in tune with reality. So your results are going to be more of what you want. Look at dim in your field, and also look at dim in your life. Right? There's life is dim as well. And Peacock makes this point. And it's a great point. You know, you can either live a misintegrated life blindly obedient to unquestioned rules. You can live a disintegrated life where you live in the moment and your your life ends up being like a naturalist novel. Like a D1 novel. You know, just a set of of scenes. And, and maybe the scenes are fun, but they don't really build on one another. They, they don't, they, they just create a juxtaposition of scenes. Not a coherent whole, not a gestalt, not a series of events that build on one each other on one another. You take what you learned in the previous one to infuse to make better the next section, the next um, act of your life, I guess you could say, the next scene. And that's the idea of of living um, eye in literature, right? Like I like I say that like the Amazon River. Every like it's not as long as the Nile, but its output is way bigger because it has a bunch of tributaries, and they're not tributaries that go nowhere. They're not beabongs. They all feed the same main river, and this is what makes the output of the Amazon River way greater than the Nile, even though it's a much smaller, uh, much smaller river. If you want to learn more about an I approach to psychology, about an integrated view, a good place to start would be my book, animusempire.com slash book. There is just a link to uh, the Amazon page available on Kindle. Get a paperback as well. And if you want to reach out, you know, we take questions, animus at animusempire.com. Animusempire.com slash schedule. If uh, if you're asleep by now, I'm just going to... uh, Incept you. Ask me a question. Animus at animusempire.com. Reach out. Let somebody know what's going on. Animusempire.com slash schedule. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for sticking around. I know this was a long one, but you can tell I'm having a lot of fun doing this. And as always, I wish you all the pain and all the joy that comes from being in touch with reality. <laughs>